Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts. So let's select a game and press start. Hello and happy Pride gamers. Welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and I usually bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. But this episode is a little different. It's just me this week. I had a lot happening in my work life and in my personal life, so I didn't have time to prep for a normal episode. Didn't have the bandwidth to commit to a recording time with another person with their own schedule. So to make it easy on myself, I'm doing another solo episode of the show. I could have taken a break, but the truth is, I love making the show. I'm proud that I've been able to release every episode on time so far this year, and I don't want to break that streak. So even if it isn't the typical format, I hope this episode is worth it to you, and I hope it tides you over until the next episode. I'm really happy for the next few episodes I'm doing. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I can't wait to show it to you. Also, it's the 25th episode of the show, and I'd like to make it special in some way. Make it stand out. So it is mainly going to be an episode about my feeling on Tears of the Kingdom, but this episode is also going to be a sort of celebration for the show, as well as a bit of a retrospective of the show's first year with some thoughts on how 2023 is shaping up. That will all happen after I talk about Tears of the Kingdom, though, which is a game that I have quite a lot to say about. So the format of this episode will be my thoughts on Tears of the Kingdom, talk about my favorite things of the year are so far, and then celebrate making it to 25 episodes. I also want to apologize for the sound of my voice. I'm getting over a cold. Like I said, a lot's been going on this month. Before we talk about Tears of the Kingdom, though, I got to do some quick housekeeping and advertise a few things I'm proud to be a part of. If you're listening to this episode specifically for Tears of the Kingdom thoughts, I put timestamps in the description of this episode so you know right where to skip. But for those of you who like the show, please listen on. I have a quick few things I want you to be aware of. Firstly, for those of you disappointed that this episode is shorter than usual because you love listening to my voice so much, I have some good news. I did a few guest spots on some other podcasts recently. Uh, Chris Osborne, who was my guest on the Kirby's Dreamland episode, had me on his show, Play Comics, to talk about the 2004 Spider-Man 2 movie tie-in video game. Play Comics is a show where Chris interviews his guests about a video game based on a comic book property to talk about how faithful it is to the source material. We have a great conversation about the game, how great it is at depicting the ethos of Spider-Man in an interactive setting, and I get to gush about Sam Raimi, which is great. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. Spider-Man 2 is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I'm really excited about that episode, and I'll make sure I post a link of this episode as well as all the other episodes I mentioned in the description of this episode. If you listen to my episode on GoldenEye 007, the guest, Jason Kleberg, recently had me on his show, Force 5, a podcast about movie top five lists to talk about the top five bad dads in movies. It's a fun little Father's Day treat. That episode came out the day before this episode's going to appear on the main feed. Give that a listen when you can. Another great episode. Um, Really happy about the conversations we have. I love talking about movies. Definitely give that a listen. I was also on the Hyperfixation podcast, which, like this show, is also part of the Moonshot Network. It's this lovely podcast hosted by my buddy Roma, who invited me on the show to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a defining piece of media for me. The show's great. Roma's show's great. Uh, Roma's great. We're working on getting them to appear on my show in the near future, so look forward to that. Uh, But in the meantime, listen to their show, especially my episode. I get to talk about Star Wars and Avatar The Last Airbender for two hours. It's a great little setup for me. I loved it. I was I love being on that episode. Link to these episodes is in the description, which is save you the trouble of having to search for these episodes yourself. I'm also going to make a thread on the show's Twitter at SelectPodStart with all of my guest spots on other people's podcasts so people who like listening to me know where they can hear more of me. Uh, like my friend Scott's great comedy series, America's Next Top Podcast co-host, or my buddy Eric's wonderful show, Soundtracker, where I talk about the Royal Tenenbaums. There are a lot of places where you can hear me. I'll do my best to organize them for you. Uh, speaking of Twitter, I was recently suspended on there this week. My main Twitter account, Danny Vegito, has been suspended. That kind of throws a wrench in a big part of my promotion for the show, which is going to tie into what I'm talking about next. Uh, I'm trying to appeal my suspension. They haven't told me why I was suspended. Um, so, you know, write your senators, uh, call Congress, uh, get Joe Biden on this case, record a video talking about how angry you are from the driver's seat of your car. I'd be more bothered being suspended on Twitter if it hasn't become such a shit show or even worse of a shit show over the past year uh, with uh, fucking Elon's ownership of it. But it is frustrating because I am working on promoting a lot of projects like these other podcasts as well as my own podcast as well as some other projects that I'm working on. So that part really fucking sucks. So 
if you still like just following me and not just the show's Twitter account, uh, you can follow me at Kiefer Reloaded. I guess I'll post another link to that in the description. This is going to be a very link in the description heavy conversation, I guess. Fuck it. Anyway, speaking of promoting the show and how difficult that's become, I want to talk about supporting the show before we actually get into talking about Tears of the Kingdom. I love making Select and Start. This has been such a rewarding experience, and I've learned so much making this show. I also want to make the show the best show it can be, and I can't do that alone. I host the show. I edit it. I promote it as best I can. Fuck you, Elon Musk. I do a lot. I feel myself getting better, but I need your help, and there's so many ways you can help. The most direct way you can help is by joining the show's Patreon at patreon.com slash corner. Yet another link you can find in the episode description. I have two tiers right now, $1 a month or $5 a month. Anyone who contributes at least $1 a month will get access to episodes of Select and Start earlier. Most of the episodes on the Patreon are also longer than what you get for free. If that's worth it to you, please consider financially supporting the show. This is the best and most direct way you can help. Making a show isn't just a labor-intensive thing, it's also cost-intensive. I work full-time, and I'd love to be able to dedicate more time and energy to the show. When it started, I was making this show at a loss, and over a year in, it's just about breaking even. Ultimately, I make this show out of love, but it helps to have support, and financial support would allow me to set aside funds to gain access to resources that would make the show easier to make, or even eventually pay people fairly to assist with non-hosting responsibilities. That's a dream, at least. But even if you can't support the show financially, which I get, it's perfectly fine if you can't, there are so, so, so many ways you can also help me and the show without paying a thing. One of the best ways you can support the show is by giving feedback. Feedback is so important for the show. I cannot stress that enough. Rating the show five stars on your listening app goes such a long way. Five stars, written reviews, likes, whatever form positive feedback takes on your listening application takes so little of your time and it does so much for the show. It helps with visibility, it exposes the show to more people, and it helps the audience grow. A little does a lot. So if you like the show at all, please help me out in that tiny little way. It doesn't cost a thing. And while we're at it, just recommend the show to people you think would like it. Post about it on social media, share the show if you can, anything helps. I do a lot of work on this show, hosting, research, editing, promoting. Editing is the most time-consuming, but promoting it is far and away the hardest part. And if you can help alleviate that stress in any way, I would be so incredibly grateful. I'm also open to constructive feedback. I want this show to be the best thing it can be. I know it isn't perfect. I'm trying harder to make it better every episode, and any kind of feedback helps. Sending a DM to at SelectPodStart on Twitter or sending an email to selectpodstart at gmail.com are the best places to reach me to give me more detailed feedback on my show. What do you like? Uh, what should I work on? What would you like to see in the future? Things like that. Please, please, please let me know. All right. Thank you so much for hearing me out on all of that. You've been patient enough. It's time to move on to the main event. My thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. This discussion isn't going to be spoilery, or maybe it is. It depends on how you constitute spoilers. I'm going to talk about themes. I'm going to talk about characters. I'm going to talk about mechanics. I'm going to talk about locations, but I'm not going to cover any specific story beats. So if you're worried about narrative spoilers, don't worry. This is not going to touch on that. But if you just straight up do not want to know a single thing about this video game, I'm sorry, but you'll have to stop listening here. So let's get started. The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom is an open-world action-adventure video game developed by Nintendo EPD. It was published by Nintendo for the Switch and released worldwide on May 12, 2023. It is a direct sequel to 2017's The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, 
and is the first Zelda mainline game to be released in six years. The game was directed by Hidemaro Fujibayashi, who previously directed multiple Zelda games including Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons, Four Swords, Minish Cap, Skyward Sword, and of course, Breath of the Wild. This game was produced by Eiji Aonuma, senior officer of Nintendo EPD. Aonuma previously directed The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Wind Waker, and Twilight Princess. Takahira Okuda served as the game's programming director. Satoru Takizawa is the art director. Hajime Wakai is the sound director. With Manaka Kataoka, Tsukasa Usui, Masa Miyoshi, and Masato Ohashi all contributing to the game's score. So those are the facts, but what do I think? I call this episode Tears of the Kingdom Thoughts because it isn't a formal review or essay. I'm not going to break down every narrative moment and talk about every mechanic and feature. There isn't going to be a score rating at the end of this. I just want to talk about it at length. My experience, what I got out of it, talk about what I like about it, where I think it could do better, things like that, right? So what do I think of The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom? I think it's one of the best video games I've ever played. As many of you know, Zelda is my favorite video game franchise. Ocarina of Time was the first video game I remember playing. Majora's Mask is my favorite game of all time. Zelda is, at this time, the most represented series on the show. I've previously covered A Link to the Past, Wind Waker, and Breath of the Wild on the show, and I've raved about them endlessly. I love this series so much. I understand when I say this is one of the best games I ever played. It sounds biased because I have such an affinity for this series. But Zelda's a game series that constantly transforms itself. And since Breath of the Wild, the game's like presentation, the way it's played, all of that has radically changed. It's certainly familiar. There's a lot of familiar tropes in it. And individual Zelda games have always been defined by their differences as much as they are with their similarities. And that's what I love about the series, right? Is how malleable it is, how it can be so many different things. I love that about the series so much. And I think this game is possibly the most transformative of any of these games. And that's saying that as a direct sequel to Breath of the Wild. This is possibly the most confident game I've ever played. And considering it is a sequel to a critically acclaimed video game, part of one of the most beloved franchises in the medium is impressive. If it isn't one of the best games ever made, it is certainly the best sequel ever made. And when I say best sequel, I don't necessarily mean, oh, so this numbered entry in this particular series isn't the best game ever made. I'm thinking more in terms of like, this game took an already incredible template with the previous game and masterfully added to it in a way I have never seen done so well. This is a game that is using the same engine as a launch title on the Switch, a game that was released on the Wii U and made it feel like a fresh and completely new experience. Let me reiterate, Tears of the Kingdom is using the same engine as Breath of the Wild, has largely the same overworld, and is built for the same hardware, and totally surpasses the original. And that isn't a knock on Breath of the Wild. I still think Breath of the Wild's incredible. But this is a game whose existence is basically challenging the way both players and game developers should look at video games and video game development. And look, I understand that Breath of the Wild did that too. It changed how many of us perceived open world games yada yada yada, you know, changed our perception of the series, managed to go back to its roots while also being something completely new. I get it. I get that. I understand, right? But this game felt totally fresh while playing with the old and familiar. Gunpei Yokoi, the developer of the Game Boy, had a philosophy called lateral thinking with withered technology. Put simply, it means using older technology and resources and finding radical and innovative ways to make the best possible product. And I believe that this is a beautiful execution of that idea. Rather than using dev time to make a new game from scratch, they built upon the beautiful foundation laid by the previous game to create something that isn't just an expansion of the original, but a transformation. This is the outcome of over a decade of development work in the same world. And not in like a Grand Theft Auto V kind of way. They aren't just adding new content. Tears of the Kingdom is introducing new mechanics and gameplay features to fundamentally change how we interact with the world we were previously familiar with, while also adding more on top and underneath. So I guess that's a good segue to talk about the mechanics and features of the game. The first and most discussed mechanic is Ultra Hand, which is named after the first toy that Gunpei Yokoi made for Nintendo. The Ultra Hand allows Link to control movable objects, rotate them, and connect them to other movable objects. 
right away, one of like the first new mechanics is already fundamentally altering our relationship with the world around us and seeing in those trailers like how um, building and making things is crucial to the gameplay. It made me worried. I'm not a creative person, but the beauty of this game is that this game does not overwhelm me with the ultra hand and building mechanics. It doesn't feel like other building games like Minecraft where I feel the pressure of aesthetic creativity. This is a game that's more focused on making sure you understand the world and its physics more than anything else. This is a single player experience. It does not want to be impressed. It doesn't want you necessarily to impress anybody else. Certainly, you can record videos of your gameplay and share them online and show people how you made a fucking Ava from Evangelion or a piece of wood with a face and a dick on it. Yeah, you can do all that. You absolutely can share what you've made. I love that. I love the way that people are able to share what they're doing in this game. Uh, but I feel like some people wrongly assume that that means this game is putting pressure on you to be creative. Nobody is putting that pressure on you. If you want to do that, the game gives you the tools to be creative. But that is not its priority, and you should not put that pressure on yourself. It just wants you to complete a task. And how you get there is up to you and your understanding of the physics of the game and the objects available to you. The shrines in this game, shrines are back, feel so much better as a result because many of the shrine puzzles also serve as practical lessons for you and how you can use the Zonai tools in the overworld. It's not just testing for knowledge, it's enriching your understanding of the world. And the Ultra Hand is only one part of this game, right? And that blows my mind. This game has multiple mechanics that could sustain its own game and it would be considered a masterpiece. Somehow, it incorporates all of them and they all work. This feels like multiple games folded into one. I have over 100 hours logged in the game and I'm still finding new uses for Fuse. I cackled with glee at multiple points in the ways that Ascend can be used with your understanding of the geography of the world. The way I used Ascend at one point in this game made me say like, oh, this is basically the best game ever made. All these new tools are great. And it's not just the new powers that make this game feel incredible too. This game introduces the depths, which is this underground, <laughs> underground overworld, open underworld. I don't know what you want to call it, but the depths are as large as Hyrule. The depths are as large as Hyrule and how you explore them is totally different from how you explore the overworld. There is a second open world game down there that is like part what you understand as Breath of the Wild mixed with like Spelunky or Terraria or something like that. I spent countless hours just doing stuff down there and the way it promotes exploration and leaves crumbs that make meaningful upgrades in your playthrough without feeling like a grind is spectacular. I never feel like I'm wasting my time. It never feels like a diversion. It is both addictive and additive. Parallel worlds are a recurring motif in the Zelda games. The light and dark world and a link to the past, time travel and Ocarina of Time, the existence of Termina and Majora's Mask, the Great Sea and Hyrule and Wind Waker, the Twilight World and Twilight Princess, so on and so forth. I haven't even named close to all the parallel worlds. But I love the parallel world stuff. That's my point. And in terms of player experience, this may be the best execution of it in any Zelda game to date. It adds so much to the experience, especially since you're not playing it the same way that you're playing the open world areas in Hyrule. All of these new features and how they're used in a game are what I mean when I say it is the best sequel of all time. In the traditional way, I also think it's a game that improves on its predecessor in almost every single meaningful way. The fuse mechanic makes combat the best it's ever been in the series. Ultra Hand and making contraptions makes exploring and traversing Hyrule more fun. None of your tools have a cooldown like they did in the last game, so everything feels more immediate, and Link, as your player character, feels more powerful. The tools this game gives us makes it feel like we're getting away with something. There are at least a dozen shrines I've completed where I don't even know if I did it in the way that the developers intended me to. The way we're guided through this game feels like we're hanging out with like a cool relative at all times. Yeah, fuck it. Attach a bomb to your shield and then shield surf so you jump across the map. That's fucking cool, man. Do that. Awesome.
Tears of the Kingdom justifies itself as a sequel, not just by adding to the map, but by recontextualizing our relationship with it. And not just in the ways the towns have changed during Hyrule's reconstruction, but also in how we navigate these spaces and interact with them. Tears of the Kingdom's emphasis on verticality vis-a-vis -vis the sky islands, and also the depths, makes us look at these areas in different ways. Looking at the map, I understand that this is the same Hyrule as Breath of the Wild, but when I'm actually exploring these spaces, they somehow feel completely, entirely new to me. It's a simultaneous feeling of nostalgic familiarity while also feeling new and fresh, which is this powerful, strange feeling that I almost never feel from a piece of media. I feel it all the time in real life, like when you return to a hometown or when you go to a person's house that you haven't been to in years, and it's the same space, but it feels different because you're different, you know? One of my favorite films of all time is True Stories, which is a 1986 musical comedy film directed by David Byrne from Talking Heads. At one point, David Byrne, who plays an eccentric narrator in a film, says, I really enjoy forgetting. When I first come to a place, I notice all the little details. I notice the way the sky looks, the color of white paper, the way people walk, doorknobs, everything. Then I get used to the place, and I don't really notice those things anymore. So only by forgetting can I see the place again as it really is. And that's the kind of feeling that Tears of the Kingdom gives me. It's transformative familiarity. It's new, but it's also the same. But it's also different. And it's just so, so strange that this human feeling that I get in my life is being transferred into this game. I don't know if that makes sense, but... That's how I feel, at least. All of that being said, the game isn't perfect. And in every episode of my show, I ask my guests to identify ways the games that they love fall short in some way. It's only fair I do the same here. I say that this game improves on Breath of the Wild in basically every way, and I mean that. Exploration, traversing the land, combat, the characters, the narrative. Every single bit of that, that is improved. I think maybe the only way this game falls short of Breath of the Wild is in the tutorial section. I think Breath of the Wild may have the best tutorial section of any video game, which is incredible, especially in an open world game. It smartly withholds you from the vast open world while still giving you a little playground to approach situations in more than one way. It was restrictive, but it didn't feel that way. I feel like I spent much more time on Tears of the Kingdom's tutorial than I did in Breath of the Wilds, and the um, layout and the way it onboards you to mechanics isn't necessarily the best. And since you are likely going into Tears of the Kingdom with an understanding of Breath of the Wild, it can probably feel a little tedious. A lot of mechanics, as the tutorial presents them to you in Tears of the Kingdom, feel inscrutable, and you feel like you are going to enter the open world a bit more confused than you did in Breath of the Wild when you were more curious than you were necessarily like overwhelmed and confused so i think that tears of the kingdoms tutorial isn't the best but breath of the wilds did this thing where it amazed you and also gave you the resources you needed to enter the open world knowing the basic gist of your mechanics whereas you are going into the open world with tears of the kingdom confused and not really quite sure how things are going to go for you because you still don't feel like you have like a total grasp on these systems because there is so much potential with them. It's exciting, and I definitely still think this game's incredible. I don't think it's a fundamental failure. I don't think the game is ruined because of its tutorial or anything like that. And I do think the tutorial has a lot of great moments of discovery. But that is just like a way I think this game falls short. And I think that that's also a sequel problem, an inevitability of the sequel problem having to do, having to do a restricted area tutorial. Because you have this thought in your head like, okay, I had these, I had such and such by this point, but I don't have this going into the open world. Where is that now? And at the same time, a bunch of new stuff is being introduced to you very quickly. And not all of it makes sense yet because you don't really know how it's going to work in like a traditional open world environment. So I do think that that is probably the biggest failure of Tears of the Kingdom, at least in my mind. Another thing that hasn't been improved between Breath in the Wild and this game is the organization of your items. And that problem is much more obvious in a game like this, where you'll be going into menus more often to fuse your items to your arrows before firing them. If you were able to do something like craft multiple arrows ahead of time, it would make the flow of battle probably feel a bit faster. But I can also see that making Link way overpowered in this game as it is currently set up. So I sort of see why you can't go into battle with, say, like 
20 pre-made Keese Eye arrows and 30 Gibdo Bone arrows, but it still feels really disruptive in the heat of battle to go into these menus, prep them one at a time, creating this almost kind of turn-based battle feeling, having to press up and turn into a menu every single time you want to add something to your arrow. Overall, though, I do like the additional abilities I gain from each dungeon more than I like the ways that we get them from Breath of the Wild. But I do think the implementation of these abilities are a bit clunkier, right? In Breath of the Wild, your reward for completing a dungeon were various champion abilities that were sort of powerful but non-intrusive additions to things you already knew how to do. Uh, For example, Revali's Gale in Breath of the Wild activated an updraft after holding down your jump ability, lifting you much further into the air. Daruk's protection added to your shield defenses and protected you from attacks, even going so far as to deflect projectiles. Herbosa's Fury was a lightning attack you could conjure by performing a longer spin attack. Amifa's Grace gave you an instant full heart revive with five additional temporary hearts for further protection. Here, the implementation of these powers is more active. Every time you clear a temple, a sort of guardian spirit avatar joins you on your quest to give you an ability with the intention of making combat and traversal more exciting and dynamic. Whenever you're not in a populated area in the overworld, they are physically present, not just vaguely spiritually with you like they are in Breath of the Wild. They not only give you an ability, but they also assist you in battle. Not just with the ability you can activate, but with the actual physical weapons they have on them. An example of this is when you clear the Wind Temple in this game. You get a horizontal gust of wind that propels you forward faster on your glider. Whenever you're gliding, you can press A when that ability is charged to activate the gust of wind. And the cooldowns of these powers are significantly reduced when, while it would take several minutes for an ability to recharge in Breath of the Wild, it only takes a few seconds for something to recharge in Tears of the Kingdom. That part is good. Your powers are used more often, and you feel stronger as a result, incentivizing you as the player to clear these temples sooner than later. Plus, the Wind Avatar has a bow and arrow, and you can reliably land headshots that stun enemies for you, which is especially useful when dealing with hordes of enemies. I like the idea of what this is in theory. The avatars are really thematically additive to this theme I'm going to discuss later about enrichment in Tears of the Kingdom. It makes Link feel less isolated and alone by having physical entities present in battle with him. This is a living, breathing Hyrule, and their physical presence is a representation of a Hyrule that is teeming and expanding with life. But in practice, it makes many battles more difficult than they need to be. The ability you gain from the Desert Temple in particular is incredibly useful and specific to combat encounters or breaking things, and it's annoying to find that avatar's position in relation to yours, press A to prepare their ability, and then firing an arrow to unleash it. It's clunky and it's time-consuming. I understand the idea behind it from a game design perspective, right? The developers of this game clearly aren't a fan of context-sensitive button prompts, and they want one button to be used for the same action at all times which is harder to do as games get more complex, but standard controllers have more or less the same number of buttons for the past couple of decades. For example, right? In Red Dead Redemption 2, the square button on your PlayStation controller is where your fist is mapped, but it is also mapped for other interactions in certain contexts. If you're in close proximity to a person, you may interact with them with the square button, but from the wrong distance, you could accidentally punch them and unintentionally trigger a state of aggression when you're just trying to greet somebody. A lot of players end up accidentally punching their horses in the head this way. So I see why the developers of this game want to reduce those kinds of incidents by making these avatars physical entities whose powers you trigger by walking up to them and pressing the interact button with A as if you were approaching any other NPC. Which is another thing that makes this game feel like a turn-based RPG in battles when you're not just mindlessly whacking things. Every other button on the controller is mapped to something else, and since these powers are more active than the ones in Breath of the Wild, have to make some kind of design change. Still, for the Desert Temple ability, I feel like you could have done something like make the A button prompt appear when you're aiming with the bow and arrow, since it is an ability solely tied to firing arrows anyway. It would dramatically reduce my frustration with this. Ultimately, I think the combat is an upgrade from Breath of the Wild, but the way that sorting works and the way these avatars act on their own and can be difficult to activate in the heat of battle makes these upgrades a bit more frustrating than they need to be. Since these avatars act independently, They will fight with you, which is somewhat helpful, but the avatar you gain from the Wind Temple, for example, may snipe somebody with an arrow before you intended to start a combat encounter, ruining your stealthiness or the element of surprise. You can turn these individual avatars off if that's a frustration for you, but you have to go into a menu, turn it off, realize you need the ability a couple minutes later, and then turn it back on again. 
it's not a perfect system and it doesn't have a perfect solution. And then there are a couple things I'm not a fan of that aren't laws per se, but just things I personally don't love. Uh, there are a lot of shrines in this game where the only way to access them is by finding a crystal nearby and bringing it to a shrine location. A laser from that location will point you to where the crystal is, so you have to go from that shrine, find the crystal, and bring it back. And I get the appeal of that. You can use your Ultra Hand to MacGyver a device together that will take you and the crystal back to the shrine. I like doing this a few times, but it kind of started to irritate me with how repetitive it was after a while. Maybe because there was a stretch of time where I did a few of these within the same play session. Like I said, these aren't really flaws, I guess, so much as just a difference in taste. And since shrines are entirely optional, they don't really affect my overall perception of this game, which, like I said, was probably one of the best video games I've ever played, ever. I've also seen people online complaining about how time-consuming it is to upgrade the armor sets, which I definitely get. I think the beauty of this game is how great it is at promoting exploration and giving you that joy of discovery and sustaining that over such a long playthrough. Like I said, I have over 100 hours in this game. I still haven't completed everything, and I'm excited to go back and finish things up, even after I've rolled credits on the game. I was able to charge up my Zonite battery relatively quickly because I loved exploring the depths, for example. Zonite is plentiful in the depths, and boss encounters down there give you additional crystallized charges, so I was able to accumulate the material I needed to upgrade my battery quickly. And for a lot of the armor sets, getting materials normally found in caves wasn't an issue because I was exploring those caves anyway. But the requisites for a few armor sets require materials you do not naturally run into in the wild, and deliberately require you to farm for materials that aren't at all common. You'll need parts from the dragons flying around Hyrule, which you have to go out of your way to make contact with. And in my experience, you can't get multiple things from them at a time. That's just farming and grinding, which is pretty counterintuitive to the design of this game and what makes it so great. So I get that criticism, and I agree with it to an extent. As for the actual rupee investment of things, I remembered ways to make money from my time in Breath of the Wild and didn't feel like I was hurting for funds the same way some people were, but I think that's just sort of like an understanding of how to get money. So, for example, for me, cooking whole slabs of meat on an open flame sells for quite a few rupees. And meat is an easy resource to acquire since animals are plentiful in the open world. So, I always had money on hand. But if you don't know ways to quickly accumulate rupees, I can definitely understand that barrier in terms of improving your armor sets quickly, too. Those are my main issues with the game. At least, those are the ones I could think of when preparing for this episode. Besides the tutorial, these feel like nitpicks. So, for me, and what I want out of a video game, I don't feel like there are tremendous flaws. And I want this to be a positive show. I don't want to end the show on a note of talking about the issues with the game. So I want to go back to talking about the things that this game does well and really examine the relationship between this game and its previous game, Breath of the Wild. Last time on Dragon Ball Z. Turtle and I are going out to dinner. You two better behave while we're gone. And most importantly, no improv. If I hear any yes and, you're getting the back of this hand. Well, Vince, it looks like we've got the Kame house all to ourselves. Yeah, we do, Aaron, and you know what that means. It's time to throw a banger of a pod we're Kame House Party, the only improv comedy Dragon Ball podcast in the known universe. We're going through every iteration of Dragon Ball, episode by episode, and performing improvised scenes based on what we watched. And you don't have to be a Dragon Ball super fan to enjoy the podcast, because each week we do a one-minute roundup to catch everyone up so you can enjoy the latest and greatest episode. Yes, and... What the shell is going on? They're doing improv all over the Kame House. They even put on flannel shirts. We're Kame House Party, part of the Moonshot Network, with new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't close out a promo while I'm yelling at you. Finn. As I said earlier, I think that Tears of the Kingdom improves on Breath of the Wild in every single meaningful way. Which naturally raises the question, does it render Breath of the Wild obsolete? And I understand where people are coming from when they ask that question. To me though, the answer is an emphatic no. I don't think Tears of the Kingdom is going to render Breath of the Wild obsolete. Like a good sequel should, it enhances it. 
The quiet, sleepy apocalypse feeling of Breath of the Wild is more potent and thematically resonant now that we have a Hyrule that is brimming with life. These cities are more populated, there are more people occupying the stables. The world is more alive and there are more people in it. I can understand the argument that the minute-to-minute -minute enjoyment of Breath of the Wild may not compare to Tears of the Kingdom in future replays just because there are so many new mechanics in Tears of the Kingdom and many of your powers are advancements of stuff that were from Breath of the Wild. But I think the artistic intent of the original is made much more clear with the sequel. Breath of the Wild is about preserving life, and Tears of the Kingdom is about enriching it. In Breath of the Wild, the world has been quietly on the brink of total annihilation for a century. It's an isolating experience. When you take on Calamity Ganon in Breath of the Wild, you're receiving assistance from various races of Hyrule to collectively save the world. Hyrule is linked by their shared desire to survive and they successfully stop their apocalypse by working together. Here, in Tears of the Kingdom, you receive the powers of the various races again, and along the way we see the ways that the culture of Hyrule has changed and how the lives of returning characters have also changed along the way. The world of Hyrule is more densely populated. Stables have more people and offer you more side quests. Villages from previous games have evolved and grown. The Terrytown you helped build in Breath of the Wild is expanding, and the idea of Terrytown place where people of all backgrounds can live together harmoniously is also expanding. Narito, Gerudo, Gorons, and Zora are everywhere, not just in their respective villages. The central hub near Hyrule Castle, where people are trying to fight back the gloom and the monsters in the world, isn't just populated with Hylians, it's populated with all of the races. Enrichment as a theme is evident in every part of Tears of the Kingdom, in both story and gameplay. And that's down to the smallest detail, like even when you're getting Korok seeds. In Breath of the Wild, all the Koroks were hidden, and you could still find hidden Koroks in this game, but you also see a lot of Koroks out in the open, carrying a backpack, asking for help so they can reunite with their fellow traveling companion for two Korok seeds. And enrichment is also manifested in your powers in this game. The Ultra Hand is an advanced version of your Magnesis ability in Breath of the Wild. Your Recall is an evolved version of Stasis. I can't have you brought up Recall yet. Recall is... God, the Recall ability is so good. I can't even get into it because I'm not even sure the kind of work that goes into that kind of thing, but the recall ability is just incredible. It's an evolved version of your stasis ability. All these abilities are much more versatile and empowering abilities. Even though you have to regain your hearts and stamina from scratch, you still generally feel like you're more powerful than you were in Breath of the Wild. And the powers that you get after completing each temple from the... And the powers that you get from people after... And the powers that you get after completing each temple are less passive, more active powers that can be used more frequently. Like I said earlier, their, their cooldowns are much shorter, and their spirits take on physical forms that assist you in battle. As Zelda says in the trailer for this game, and in the game itself, you are not alone. Weapon degradation in Breath of the Wild was a thematic representation of the apocalyptic circumstances laid out in the game. You are occupying this fragile, decaying world. You're fighting an uphill battle. It is the narrative and the interactive linking together. And weapon degradation still exists in Tears of the Kingdom, but it is a vector for creativity for the player and drives home the game's themes of empowerment through collaboration and unity. You are not alone. Your weapons on their own are weak and they could easily break, but by fusing it with another item, not only is it more powerful, it can take on another quality. If you are not linking things to your weapons and shields, you're going to have a harder time with the game. Speaking of unity, think about how many side quests in this game are you helping a group of ragtag soldiers of not just Hylian descent, but of all Hylian races, defeat Ganondorf's monsters in the overworld. This is a better world, a more collaborative world, a united world, a linked world. You are not alone. Ultra Hand as a feature is also part of this theme of unity. Setting aside the fact that the arm you use to channel these new powers isn't originally yours, you are taking individual parts that are nothing on their own and making them into something entirely new. Hopefully for good, but I guess you can also use them to torture Koroks, I guess. I've seen a lot of TikToks like that. But you are linking parts together to create something more useful and more powerful than they would be on their own. Everything about this game comes back to links, which is also why I think it's impactful that these are the only mainline Zelda games where your player character has to be called Link name is more narratively and thematically significant than ever. The inciting incident of this game is brought on by conducting research into Hyrule's history and past. Links to the past. 
Throughout the game, you are exploring the depths, which recontextualize your relationship with Hyrule and how you perceive and explore that space. Links between worlds. Your powers emphasize linking things together. It is incredible that this game introduces so many mechanics and implements them so masterfully, but the fact that they all serve the same thematic purpose makes it even better. And the fact that these two games, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, are directly linked to each other, set in the same world with the same characters, is also important. These two things are connected to each other. And Tears of the Kingdom's themes of enrichment carry over to Breath of the Wild. I think that's another way Tears of the Kingdom is the best sequel of all time. To me, it doesn't usurp its predecessor. It enhances it. And you don't have to agree with me on this. I think how you play and approach games will inform your relationship with Breath of the Wild post-Tears of the Kingdom. As interactive experiences, many gamers have been conditioned to feel empowered or to seek empowering experiences. And as we've discussed throughout this episode, in Tears of the Kingdom, you are going to be more powerful. You're going to have more resources that affect the world in many different ways. So I guess it's sort of a mindset thing when you are going to approach replays to Breath of the Wild. Why do you play video games? How do you play video games? Do you believe that games are meant to be empowering? Or do you believe that they are experiences that you can learn things from? I think revisiting Breath of the Wild with its limitations after playing Tears of the Kingdom is going to be a powerful experience. Now that we know how alive Hyrule will become in Tears of the Kingdom, Breath of the Wild is going to feel more isolated. You are going to feel more limited. But you're trying to preserve the remnants of a lost world. That's your goal in that game. Maybe you won't feel the same way, but... I'm looking forward to revisiting Breath of the Wild after this. It's going to feel different, and I'm excited about that. So that's all I have to say about Tears of the Kingdom for now. Tears of the Kingdom is a masterpiece to me. It's a great game on its own, but it enriches my relationship with another game. A related game. I've been speaking in broad terms throughout this episode because I could just gush about the specificities in my experience with this game. But I just really want to get to the emotional core of this because that's the part i've been ruminating on a lot and that's what i really wanted to get into today so i really appreciate you listening to me this game has been incredible and the fact that it has not only made an impact on me but made a previous game experience more impactful is truly special these are the kind of experiences that make me believe that games are a work of art that's going to do it for my discussion on tears of the kingdom i'm going to move on now and talk about what's been going on for me uh in 2023 talk about the show and then we'll end this episode With all of that out of the way, I'm going to dedicate the rest of the episode to what's been going on with me in 2023. And this is going to be a lot more loose. I had most of my written thoughts down for this episode to talk about Zelda, because I guess that was the priority. Rightfully so. As I talked about a little bit, this has been the main game I've been playing for the past month. And I don't really play a lot of new releases. The show has me play a lot of older games by design, because it's people talking about memorable and meaningful game experiences. So... Uh, It's harder to use my video game time that I do have to just keep up with the zeitgeist. Plus, I usually have an issue paying full price for video games regularly. But I did play uh, another video game from 2023. And I wanted to absolutely make time for it because it is a remake of one of my favorite games of all time. uh, Resident Evil 4 Remake. And if you listen to my Resident Evil 4 episode with my buddy Eric from Soundtracker, you know that I think the original Resident Evil 4 is fantastic and holds up really well despite being an 18-year-old game. I only got into the Resident Evil series in the last few years, but it has already quickly become uh, one of my favorite video game franchises, and I'm blown away at how good this remake is. I was nervous about it. I was really nervous about it, but it feels so good to play. It looks so good, and it feels, even though it's the same environments and it does have a lot of the same set pieces, it feels like a different game from Resident Evil 4 in a way that doesn't totally replace it. It's just, it's just, a, really damn, it's just a really damn good action game. I'll probably talk about it a bit more in a future episode because I'm planning to have Eric back on soon. Uh, so I'll save my more elaborate thoughts for that. But I just wanted to like get it out there that Resident Evil 4 Remake is fantastic. And if you've been on the fence about it, definitely check it out. Hopefully I can find more time to play games from this year because it's shaping up to be a really dense year for video games and there's so much I want to play. Uh, Hi-Fi Rush has been installed on my computer for months. I know it's a relatively short game, but I've been so busy that I haven't been able to crack that open yet. Uh, I never played the Dead Space games, and I'd love to pick up the remake and play that. I've heard nothing but great things about it. 
Uh, people have been really talking up uh, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, and I'm definitely going to play that sooner than later because I like the first game. But unfortunately, it came out too close to Tears of the Kingdom, so I haven't bought it yet. Uh, I'm dog shit at fighting games, but I'm really interested in Street Fighter VI. Uh, people I know and two states I trust say that this is a good fighting game. They really liked it so far. I played a lot of Street Fighter 4 and was really bad at it, but I had a great time with it. So yeah, when I hope I hope I can make time for Street Fighter 6 soon too. Man, it really seems like Capcom has been on this really big upswing lately. Uh, over the past half decade or so, they've just been really consistent with the quality of their releases. Uh, they've been doing a pretty solid job bringing older titles onto current hardware. I'm definitely going to pick up the Mega Man Battle Network collection because I loved those games when I was a kid. Capcom, if you can keep this up, I'll consider forgiving you for canceling Mega Man Legends 3. In terms of future releases, I'm really stoked for Insomniac's uh, Spider-Man 2, uh, Final Fantasy 16. I'm sure I'll get around to. Um, I might have to play 15 first because I've had that on my PlayStation 5 for a while. I don't know. You know what I'm really excited for is Final Fantasy 7 Rebirth. I know that's next year, but that is definitely a game I'm going to buy new. Uh, I'm all in. I am all in on the Final Fantasy 7 remake stuff. Um, I can't wait to play this one. Oh, they're doing a remake of Metal Gear Solid 3. That's whatever. I don't. I don't know. I don't know, but they are re-releasing the older Metal Gear Solid games again, and I'm definitely going to pick that up. I already own the collection on the PlayStation 3, but why not have another one? It's one of my favorite franchises of all time. I got to get that, especially since Konami is horrible at preservation, and who knows when this will be available again. So yeah, that is uh, a year in video games so far. I also want to shout out the games that I have been playing that weren't released in 2023. Most of them I've covered on the show, like Final Fantasy VIII, Metroid Prime, and GoldenEye 007. But I also really enjoyed Ape Out. Ape Out is a really good indie game that I finally got around to. Check that out if you can. Yakuza Kiwami 2, that's another amazing game that I played this year. I love the Yakuza franchise, like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. I really like how they just keep using the same overworld, but recontextualizing it as time passes. The Yakuza series is great. If you have been on the fence about this series at all, you got to check these games out. They are fantastic. And I'm really excited about the two new ones that are coming out. But look, I'm not only a video game guy. There's other things that have been going on in my year. I'm a huge movie guy. A lot of great movies this year. I've already watched over 100 movies that were new to me in 2023. Most of them are from before 2023, but a few 2023 releases that I really love. John Wick Chapter 4. Uh, fantastic, fantastic uh, denouement to the John Wick story. There are two sequences that are very reminiscent of video games. It's the, this is a series that speaks for itself, so I don't really have to harp on it. Across the Spider-Verse, also a fantastic movie that I saw recently. I would say that that and John Wick Chapter 4 are my two favorites of 2023 so far. Yeah, and you know what? I'm burnt out on superhero stories. I'm really burnt out on superhero stories, uh, and I'm really especially tired of the Disney homogeny of everything. But you know what was really good? Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. The MCU is such a tight ship. None of these movies ever really get to feel like a blank check, but this one does, and it does a lot with it. It does feel like two movies folded into one because it feels like Gunn has such an attachment to these characters, and he disagreed with a lot of the choices other writers and directors have made since Guardians of the Galaxy 2. But I do really think that he gives them a really good send-off in this, in this movie. Uh, the Guardians movies have always been my favorite of the MCU. And yeah, great, great movie. There's still a ton of movies I need to see. And there's a lot I'm looking forward to. Asteroid City. I really want to see that. Wes Anderson's one of my favorite directors. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums is my favorite movie of all time. I can't wait to see that. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Barbie. Oppenheimer. Dune Part 2. Ridley Scott's Napoleon. There's a lot of great movies to look forward to. And I can't wait to see them. And uh, I want to shout out a few older movies that I finally got around to seeing for the first time this year. Only Yesterday is an incredible coming-of-age story from Studio Ghibli and the Grave of the Fireflies director. Uh, people do not talk about this one enough. I found it really moving. It sort of switches between the, the lead character as a woman and as a child. Um, as a child, uh, when she's recalling these memories, uh, it has like this different, more simplistic art style that sort of like conveys like how these memories aren't as textured as our current lived reality present is. It's such a good case for using animation 
as a dramatic storytelling device. These things don't only have to be comedies. These things don't only have to be sitcoms or gross or vectors for elaborate action sequences. They can also just be used to convey really grown up and mature stories, which only yesterday is. Everybody should see these movies if you like Studio Ghibli movies or animation in general. They're just, it's, it's, it's really good. The Taking of Pelham 123, the 1974 version very specifically is this incredible thriller about a hostage situation in a New York subway. It's just great cinema. It's only an hour and 45 minutes too. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon has everything that makes movies great. Uh, oh, I watched Goodfellas for the first time last month. Uh, that's a movie that's so good. It made me feel stupid for not watching it sooner. Uh, it's two and a half hours long, but Thelma Schoonmaker's editing makes it feel so short. I loved it so much. Speaking of Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker uh, and Robert De Niro, who's also in Goodfellas, I watched King of Comedy for the first time as well. And that's also a fantastic movie. Uh, so yeah, movies, very, very highly popular, critically acclaimed movies that I am recommending to you now from my video game podcast. I can talk about these things because I can do whatever I want. This is my show. I'm in complete control. I'm the editor. I am the master of my domain. Anyway, let's talk about TV. Uh, oh my God, I caught up on Succession as the fourth season was airing. Uh, put me on a long list of people praising Succ Succession. That's a, that's a great show, fantastic show. Uh, Barry's series finale, also great. Such an incredible TV show. If you haven't watched it already, you are missing out. It is amazing what the show can do as a half-hour TV show. It is incredibly eclectic, drawing from so many different cinematic sources, but it is also so distinctly its own thing. Uh, 32 episodes. Each one is only 30 minutes long. You can knock this show out very quickly if you're looking for another TV show to watch. Uh, shout out to Noho Hank, one of the great TV characters. Uh, oh, I think you should leave. Season three continues to deliver amazing sketch comedy. The doggy door and the pay it forward sketches are probably my, are probably my two favorites of the season, but it's a strong season overall. Uh, always fun when it has a relatively bigger guest star like Will Forte or Tim Heidecker or Tim Meadows or even Jason Jason Schwartzman. But I got to give a lot of love to the people like Patty Harrison, Connor O'Malley and Sam Richardson who really know how to make this show magical. I've loved this show since the first episode from the very first sketch. I'm glad it's taken on a life as the language of a lot of Internet spaces, uh, especially on Twitter and TikTok. Great show. Great, fantastic show. Those are some highly popular TV shows that sort of speak for themselves. So I don't really have much more to say. But there is one more show that doesn't really get enough love, and I want to highlight it. Uh, Poker Face flew under so many people's radar because it was released on Peacock, which doesn't feel like a real streaming service. But it's this really wonderful show created by Ryan Johnson. Natasha Lyonne plays Charlie Kale, a cocktail waitress at a casino who can tell when people are lying. She ends up on the run after exposing a lie way bigger than she's equipped to handle herself. Every episode is a new sort of case of the week murder mystery with a how done it Columbo style where we see what happens and we see how Charlie ends up discovering and exposing the lie. So yeah, hot girl Columbo where she isn't a cop. Uh, everybody should watch the show. It's got great guest stars like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tim Blake Nelson, Nick Nolte, Tim Meadows, Hong Chow, and so, so on and so forth. Yeah, check it out. Great, great show. Uh, music. I guess I should talk about music too. I haven't listened to a lot of new music this year. I've mostly been listening to De La Soul and The Replacements. Uh, but there's a few things I am looking forward to this year. Uh, Jeff Rosenstock recently released a single and announced a tour with Sidney Gish. And I'm definitely going to see him live again. I am so looking forward to that show. Blur has a new album coming out right after my birthday, too. Definitely looking forward to that. Um, as for what's been released in 2023, uh, so far, my favorite album is Jesse Ware's That Feels Good. Uh, that album is so good. Uh, oh, that feels good. Yeah. It's such a confident and intense fusion of disco and funk. It's infectiously energetic. If you've never heard anything by Jessie Ware before, listen to this album and her 2020 album, What's Your Pleasure? They're both just incredible disco pop albums. You got to listen to this. You got to listen to this. Other albums from this year I've really enjoyed. Uh, this Is Why by Paramore. Uh, Desire, I Want to Turn Into You by Caroline Pulitschek. Also great. I've had a pretty good time with The Age of Pleasure by Janelle Monet. It's not her most uh, sophisticated work, but it is just really, really fun music. I liked it a lot. Uh, oh, and uh, Cracker Island by Gorillaz was also a solid album. It's not, again, not my favorite, not one of their more sophisticated albums, but it is a good collection of songs that I keep coming back to, um, especially Oil, which features Stevie Nicks on it. I think that's a really good song. Yeah, that's the music I've been listening to. Uh, the movies I've been watching, the shows I've been watching, the video games I've been playing. Uh, Maybe you got a better better sense of my taste. I should probably 
move on now and talk about the show. Like I said, this was uh, the 25th episode of Select and Start. That's a, that's a huge milestone. I've never done this much of anything before creatively. It's been an incredible year. Uh, I've been rolling with the punches, making this show, trying to c- commit to a consistent schedule, which, hey, in 2023, haven't been late yet. Uh, but trying to commit to a consistent schedule while having so many life changes happen. Uh, I had to move from my hometown to Savannah, Georgia. And that's been, uh, it's been great for me. And it's made me feel more creative. I'm around a lot of amazing people that I get to see regularly. I have a new friend group and people who are just really into so many different things. And it inspires me to get into uh, more interesting things. I feel like I've become just a more well-rounded person over the last year. And I hope that reflects in the stuff that I make for you guys. Um, I've got a new kitten, my roommate Avery, uh, who makes the art for the show. And I, uh, her neighbor found a kitten. Uh, it looked to be like four weeks old. They said it was crawling towards a sewer grate in the street. Uh, they didn't have the means to take care of it themselves. And we said that we could watch it for a few days and see what we could do to get it a new home. And uh, he did find a new home. It was with us. His name is Funky Boy. Uh, that was the beginning of May. I'm recording this in June now. So he's probably about 10, 10, 11 weeks old now. And he is just the most beautiful little guy. Um, the other two cats I have, Naja and Piqui, who are also just the most adorable, beautiful creatures in the world. They love him. Our dog, Mortimer, who's a curmudgeon and doesn't like anybody, tolerates him. So that's, that's sweet. So yeah, we had to keep him. We had to keep him in our lives. Welcome to the family, Funky Boy. Uh, got it feel so emotional just talking about these cats. I love them so much. Video game. It's a video game show. Play Stray. Just play Stray. It's a great cat game. Great cat game. But yeah, no, 25 episodes of this show that, um, that would not be possible without the support of so many people. I said that I am, you know, that I know, so I know I said I was like the sole, um, creator of all of this. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm the only person, uh, involved in making this show great. You know, yeah, I do the research. I am the host. I uh, edit the show, but the show wouldn't be possible without so many people. The Moonshot Network, which is just this wonderful network that's been able to give me so much support and love and a space for the show to grow. They were incredible uh, ever since they added me on in February. And there are so many talented people on part of the Moonshot Network. And I'm honored to be a part of this place and surrounded by so many talented people it's incredibly incredibly validating and humbling and my guests oh my god my guests they they are what makes this show great it's what makes this format work it's why i want to keep doing this show if it were just me if i was just doing solo episodes this show would not get done uh i kind of did this solo episode to prove myself that i can commit to the schedule and that's great i love doing this i love talking don't get me wrong but this these guests are what make this show possible so thank you to all of the wonderful guests so far, Manu, Will, Tom, Maddie, Jared, Dre, Emily, thank you, Eric, thank you, Trevor, Avery, my roommate, the artist for this show, also a guest. He's done so much to help support this show. Um, I really, really like this. None, 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 so much of this show wouldn't be possible without him. Luke, Suze, Jane, Michael, uh, my fellow and being suspended in Twitter, Michael, shout out to you, Mark Normandon who also recently wrote something for Pace Magazine about Tears of the Kingdom that you should definitely check out. Uh, Caroline, Stephanie, Chloe, Jason, Hamish, Chris, Riley, and of course, all of my future guests who you haven't met yet. Thank you so much again to Moonshot for making me part of their podcast network. They have a ton of tremendously talented people, and I'm honored to be among them. Avery, thank you for being a wonderful roommate. Thank you for being so accommodating about the creation of this show. Thank you all. I'm still going to be releasing episodes bi-weekly as much as I can. I hope that you're able to support me along the way. All these people uh, are so wonderful. But at the end of the day, the person I have to thank the most is you. Without you, there would be no show. Making a show is one thing. Having a show that's worth listening to is another. So thank you. For those of you who joined my Patreon, thank you so much for supporting the show financially. But thank you to all the listeners who tune in have given me great feedback so far i've been super encouraging it's always so so lovely when people tell me that they play a video game because it came up on our show or because our guests talked about it so lovingly or because i talked about it so enthusiastically or just 
it's it's incredibly moving to have any kind of impact on people's lives. So yeah, you guys have been wonderful, wonderful listeners. So thank you. Thank you for supporting the show. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I am your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Tears of the Kingdom or any other games I've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you'll get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. That's on patreon.com slash Corner. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on moonshotpods.com. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work, as well as mine, as well as so many other links. We have so many links in this episode. Timestamps, this is going to be a really full description, guys. Please, please read the description. All right, I think that's it. You are not alone.